Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSports723. We've now arrived at the fun part of our double feature. Yeah, we did. At least assuming you listened to the sign ceiling stuff first. If you haven't, we did two-part episodes. If you skipped that episode, episode, you came right to the fun part. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, good for you, because that shit is pedantic as hell. Pedantic as hell, but Saturday... Saturday fucking slapped. Yeah, Saturday was fun. If you want to hear about science stealing, go to the other episode because we're not going to talk about it here. We're going to talk about fun shit, including kicking the living crap out of Michigan State at Spartan Stadium 49 to nothing. Super cool. I remember like all day before this game where you were like, I'm anxious. It's Michigan State. I don't like it. And I think if I remember right, you said something like, I just want this to be over with like nine minutes left in the first quarter. Yes, that's what I said. It wasn't quite that fast, but it was pretty close i mean yeah it was i mean michigan put these guys in a grave quick yeah i mean i don't even know where to start with this but like right from the opening drive they made it very clear very quickly that this was a a name your score game which was you know basically just like every other game michigan's played this year against a garbage big 10 team except this one ended up even more lopsided this was michigan's biggest win of the year right probably because they had a little just a little bit of added motivation to make that score a little bit higher than in some of those other games? I think it was because they stole the sign from Michigan State's shitty pitch play that we saw (laughs) six times in this game. They were stealing the signs from Kate and Hauser going over to the sideline and like huddling up conspicuously with God, it was (laughs) stupid and dramatic. It was so dramatic. No, one of the things in light of the sign stealing controversy that Matt pointed out was like multiple times in this game, he's sitting on the couch going, they're going to run that fucking pitch play again. Just from the formation, he was like, they're running that dumb pitch play again. And every single time, they did run the dumb pitch play. And I was like, okay. And I'm not videotaping. I'm not in the vast network, despite what you may believe. So No, I was like, you just suck. The conclusion <laughs> is you're fucking terrible. No one needs your shit. No, no, Michigan did not need any help in this game. You could blindfold Connor Stallions. We don't give a shit. Like, shut up. No, like I said, this game was never in doubt. Signs are not. It ended up as Michigan's largest ever win in East Lansing, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. And the biggest win in this rivalry overall since 1955. So this was about as dominant a Power 5 on Power 5 win as there has been in college football this year. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, I I beg you to go look at the did we really get beat that bad graph because, man, that end of the bar chart is sexy. I've got it on my Twitter. Again, this is net success rate, so your average success rate offensively against the other team's average success rate over the course of the game. And largest gap in the country among Power 5 teams. They only track Power 5, but... Michigan over Michigan State by a lot. Yeah, I mean, mean, whoever is second is looking up at us going, how's the weather up there? (laughs) Because it's fucking dominant in every way. It was so cool. Yeah, and and it was dominant and methodical. I mean, scoring went 14-0 Michigan in the first quarter, 14-0 Michigan in the second quarter, 14-0 Michigan in the third quarter, and then it was, you know, Tuttle time by the end, uh, not even the end, the middle of the third quarter again. Not that any Michigan State fans were still around to see it at that point since they were... They were long gone by halftime. I mean, the second half sounded like, I mean, you're hearing the, the let's go blue chance, the cheers for every Michigan play. It sounded almost like a home game, which is embarrassing, but also indicative of the state of these two programs right now. Anyway, total yards were 477 to 182 in Michigan's favor. First downs at, at halftime, first downs were 16 to 2. 
and they ended up 28 to 10 even with Michigan State getting some kind of late you know garbage time stuff and at one point late in the game Michigan State had 102 yards in penalties and 97 yards of total offense which is a very Michigan State sort of achievement I would say yeah and then of course there was the pregame fiasco (laughs) in which Michigan State put Hitler on the scoreboard (laughs) I just, if you don't know, I I have to believe that everybody who is listening to this podcast has seen this shit already, but they were running some YouTube video with trivia questions on the scoreboard and the run up to the game. Just like a random YouTube trivia video that the creator of the video even said, like, they didn't ask me. They just pulled something off of YouTube and put it on the scoreboard, you know, presumably because this is a broke ass program that can't even afford to create their own content. content, Losers, but they... It, it was, the trivia question asked about Hitler's birthplace, and the, so On there's the just there's like, just a big picture of smiling Hitler, which <laughs> it was so unsettling and weird. We were all like, "What the fuck?" And of course, it yielded very, very funny, you know, Twitter commentary. Feel bad for Michigan State, but this was tremendous content in but the words of Darren Rovell. <laughs> I don't feel bad for them though. Um, well, right, Jason Kirk part. from you know Shutdown Fullcast fame tweeted out having to type up HitlerApology.doc while the team is losing 42-0 to zero to its most despised rival is an actual sports information director nightmare. <laughs> and that pretty much sums it up because... And not just for the SID, but the program as a whole. I mean, this really felt like... I mean, they got obliterated by Washington earlier this year, right? But then they kind of... They kind of recovered. Like, they haven't been good this year, but it sort of felt like they were hanging on to some shreds of competitiveness like they, they hadn't given up on the season but that game that was bottoming out and even in the last 24 hours I don't know if you've seen this but Simeon Barrow Michigan State's best defensive player entered the transfer portal I didn't see that Jesus they've got 30 days after the firing of Mel Tucker to do so and be in the portal kind of independent of the other portions of the year when you're allowed to enter but yeah anyway so uh this is, uh, this is a dark time for Michigan State. It was very fun for Michigan. Yeah, I loved it. Please. At the 2019 game, which was the closest I've come before this to, like, an absolutely cathartic ass-kicking of Michigan State, I believe we won that one 44-10. Matt knows this was the first football season after we had started dating, and him and I are in my seats, and Michigan is up 44-10. to And they had just scored their like what I assume was their like last score of the game and I am actively screaming from this my seat that they should kick it onside (laughs) yep because I hadn't gotten enough blood I was like kick it onside Matt was like be serious and I was like no do it and in this game they absolutely did do it because you know we had Alex they didn't literally kick onside no but. but like the equivalent which is Alex Orgy scoring a touchdown with like eight seconds left or whatever the fuck to make it 49 to nothing. I think that was absolutely a reaction to them having taken a personal foul like right before that. Like if you're committing personal fouls with 30 seconds left down 42, I'm trying to score. Fuck off. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that was Shut the case up. for a lot of the second half, which we'll talk about. But yeah, that was a very cathartic, revenge-ish kind of game that I think we'll, we all were wanting. And um, yeah, it was just, it was everything we wanted in all the best ways. So we'll be enjoying that one for a minute. You want to talk about the offense? Start there. Yeah, my sweet, sweet boy, J.J. McCarthy. Oh, my God. God. Like, his throws, 
terrify me in the best way. <laughs> like every once in a while, I look back at one of his throws, the one to Loveland over Cal Halliday in particular. Yeah, I mean, he had three or four in this game, but the post he threw, I think it was the fourth touchdown, if I'm remembering correctly, the one to make it 28 to nothing. It's a post, right, where Colston Loveland is running just past Cal Halliday up the seam. And Cal Halliday's right on his hip pocket, and there's nothing there. I mean, the instant Cal Halliday turns and starts to run with Loveland right at his side, J.J. throws an absolute laser that clears Halliday's shoulder so fast that even as he's starting to turn his head to look for the ball, he couldn't do anything even if he wanted to. I mean, it is an unbelievable, like, it's a, a Patrick Mahomes type of throw. Like, that's the kind of stuff where there are very few players in the world that can do some of the things J.J. is doing. On the doing. one hand, yes. On the other hand, I'm a little worried about, like, is he going to be underestimating some more athletic linebackers than Cal Halliday? Like, do you think if, do you think Tommy Eichenberg can do something about that? Or no. Penn State's linebackers? No. I, I Honestly, I don't think there's a linebacker in the world that can make a play on that ball. Not like... Tyron Matthew, no one can make a play on that ball. Well, he's a safety, really, but Whatever. I mean, I, I don't think okay, there that's is a good point. I don't think there's a linebacker in the world that can make a play on that ball because the thing about like when you're in phase with a guy, like when you're just behind him and he's trying to run past you, the general rule is that when he starts to make a move with his hands, that's when you either look for the ball or you get your hands up into his. That ball got there so fast that in the time it put, took Loveland to move his hands into catching position, the ball was in them. And it just doesn't matter. Like you, you can't make a play on that. Unless you're so well positioned, which I, I don't think a linebacker... I, I, I mean, we're going to talk about the tight ends, but I don't think there's a linebacker in the country that can run with Colston Loveland, which is part of it. So J.J. knew when he had that matchup that that was where he was going. And that was just one of... I'm not even sure that was his best throw, honestly. That was the one that I was like drooling over, but he had one a little bit earlier in the game where... He throws like a 15-yard-ish out, not all the way to the sideline to Barner, but Barner's lined up, I think, in the slot or, or just off the side of the formation. And anyway, he's got a linebacker undercutting that. And J.J., if he puts it on Barner's numbers or on his face mask, the linebacker probably has a play on the ball and can at least get his hand in and break it up. And instead, he puts it right off his back shoulder where only Barner can make a play on the ball. And it's another one where he's just threading a needle in a way that, like, Man, that's that's an NFL quarterback making NFL throws that really aren't there for 95% of quarterbacks. I mean, I tweeted during the game, I said, this is it. Like, this is the best Michigan quarterback I've ever seen. This is what we thought Drew Henson could be if he'd come back in 2001 when Mel Kuyper had him as the number one prospect for next year's draft, and we were like, he could probably win the Heisman. Like, he might be the Heisman frontrunner going into the year. That's what J.J. is. Like, he's what we thought Henson could be, and he's – I mean, before the season, we talked about, can this be his Andrew Luck year? And can he make that jump to what Andrew Luck was in his second full year as a starter, where he put up one of the best QBR seasons of all time and was the number one pick in the draft, right? Yeah. And he is. I mean, he's tracking ahead of where Andrew Luck was in that season statistically. And by every metric, like we've seen a bunch of numbers the past couple of days, uh, QBR, expected points per drop back, yards per attempt like basically any number even excluding his legs from the equation he has been the best quarterback in the country and also as of Sunday morning the Heisman betting favorite which that's a thing I I, I didn't think I was gonna see like no <laughs> we I were optimistic either. I think about what we could get out of JJ this year but we talked about that question the Andrew Luck question I think we agreed that like 
he can probably get some of the way there. He's certainly got the talent, but within the structure of Michigan's offense, he's probably not getting all the way there. And also Caleb Williams exists. Like he isn't going to be the best quarterback in the country. And he kind of looks like the best quarterback in the country. Yeah, I mean, he was so good that Michigan could have pulled him at halftime if they wanted to, and they still would have covered in this game. <laughs> Correct. I mean, truthfully. Yeah, it was 28 nothing. They could have not played him at all. Jack Tuttle could have won this game. it was 35 to nothing. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about yes. this. But we were both pissed off at the end of half sequence. Uh, whatever. It doesn't matter. But, I mean, I said this at some point, like, I'm mad that my team isn't winning 35 to nothing at halftime, so I think it's going great. Um, but Well, and you mentioned the, uh, the drive at the end was kind of a middle finger. I also think J.J.'s last touchdown pass, when it was already 35 to nothing, middle of the third quarter, when we had the pick six, which we're also going to talk about as it relates to the defense, at that point, it's 35 to nothing, and I think we both kind of said, like, we're probably not seeing J.J. again in this game. They put J.J. and Corum back out there. Corum has a, a run that breaks outside, and he gets to the sideline, and the guy face masks him. Plus, Michigan State has the uh, the personal foul behind the play, in addition to the egregious personal foul they had on the pick six. So in the span of, like, you know, five plays from scrimmage or whatever, Michigan State has taken three absolutely horrific personal foul penalties. And, I mean, we all knew that was going to happen, Right. That's what happens in every one of these games that turns into something like this on the field is that Michigan State starts doing Michigan State shit. And it came, and we were kind of waffling like, uh, man, maybe you want to get these guys out of there because they they don't need to be out there and we don't need to risk it. And what is the next play? It's J.J. going play action, rolling out, and hitting A.J. Barner for a touchdown. That was just a gigantic middle finger saying, if that's how you want to play, eat another fucking touchdown. Yeah, I think that's right. Though I wanted those guys in bubble wrap immediately there. Of course, after. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they were, of course. Which, again, just kind of confirmed to me that, like, Michigan didn't need them out there. That was no. just that was just a fuck you. Absolutely. And it was very satisfying. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Ten yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, we're not the only... We flipped double birds on the field, baby. <laughs> well, that was one thing that I pointed out after the game was it's just... It's really remarkable how disciplined this Michigan team is, especially for the way they play the game and the way they've built really their whole identity as a team and as a program. I mean, this is the least penalized team in the country on a penalties-per-game basis. And they do that while just physically burying your ass into the core of the earth between the whistles over and over and over. And then eventually you want to do something about it, and so you retaliate after the play and you do something stupid that either puts your team in second and 25 or extends a Michigan drive or puts them into you know, better field position than they would otherwise have with one of the best offenses in the country. And it's just really something to watch and to, to appreciate, especially in this game where you see one team that is you know, what Michigan is and you see one team that is pretty much the exact opposite of that. But anyway, while we're on JJ and the passing game, um, I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the tight ends because... We mentioned in the preview episode last week, I said, I don't know how aggressive Michigan State's going to be, but if they want to really try to compete against the run, like if they want to bring their linebackers downhill and kind of play the way they, I think they want to play against Michigan, you're going to see Colston Loveland versus Cal Halliday and Roman Wilson versus Angelo Gross. And JJ is going to eat those alive. And that was really what happened. It was true even more broadly, I would say, because... Barner ended up with eight catches for 99 yards and a touchdown, plus the one taken off the board at the end of the half, which we're going to talk more about. And it's just to the point where 
I mean, he feels almost like a Colston Loveland equivalent, just Colston Loveland number two, or, you know, what we had in Luke Schoonmaker last year. He's a one-for-one replacement. And then you also had Loveland, of course, going you know, four catches for 79 yards and the two touchdowns, and both of those were just, and we mentioned the one, but in the second one was basically a back shoulder fade up the seam, also against Halliday, if I remember right. And both of those were just absolutely, there is nothing you can do about this. And that's yeah. what Loveland gives you, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's an extreme matchup advantage that Michigan really exploited in this game. And one nice thing, I think, one, like, thing that I want to highlight here from JJ is that it's it's really different guys every week like Roman Wilson has a shit ton of touchdowns but Cornelius Johnson's numbers are similar overall to to Wilson's minus the touchdowns sometimes it's Loveland sometimes it's Donovan Edwards this week it was AJ Barner who's by far the leading receiver and it's just whatever is there I said last week like Michigan can beat you however you want to get beat wherever the matchups are and this was just further evidence of that Yeah, and I think that showed in the run game as well because, you know, as you said, Michigan will beat you the way that you want to get beat. And Michigan State decided how they wanted to get beat, and, you know, they really were making attempts to stuff up the run. The running game was okay, but not great. Um, But it was about what you would expect against a team whose best attribute by far is its interior defensive line. Right. And it mostly plays, you know, 1980s linebackers who don't have the ability to match yeah, up that's on what big Halliday athletic. Is, right? The like the neck roll and the no gloves. Like this guy wants to be playing in nineteen eighty seven and Michigan's like, well, guess what? We're playing twenty twenty three football now. So Wait, we're <laughs> playing twenty twenty three football? Yes, we now? are. <laughs> With this quarterback, yes we are. So, you know, Corum, JJ Edwards together average just under four yards a carry combined, excluding the one sack that JJ took. It didn't think they were super aggressive with some with the linebackers, with some exceptions there. Yeah, we saw a, a few where they mixed... were screaming downhill, kind of, I think, reading what Michigan was doing, stealing signs, whatever it might have been, you know, wink, wink. Um, but no, I, I, I didn't think they were especially aggressive relative to some of the teams we saw earlier in the year. It was kind of a mixed bag, but I did think for the most part they just did a pretty good job of, like, staying in their lanes and not really getting moved off the ball, which, which we kind of knew their interior line was going to do you mentioned it that's the best part of their team frankly so it was a lot of like a yard or two of movement but no huge gaps and sometimes that that meant two yards and sometimes quorum did quorum things and made it into six seven eight yards but it was fine i thought like you said and um because of that i think michigan made the right choice they they played this game the way washington played it earlier in the year when we said they threw michael penix out there and said fuck your defensive tackles we don't care bombs away michigan wasn't you know quite that extreme but right we're not we don't play football like washington but early in the game they kind of made it that they said like okay run game is fine but that's not how we're gonna like (laughs) it's not how we're gonna light your defense on fire there is a way we can light your defense on fire and they just did it yeah no that's exactly right and it felt like the right choice as far as how to play it under the circumstances i mean for sure the much maligned Michigan State secondary didn't hold up much better this time around. So it, it's, you know, it has been the thing that I think over the last few years, right, it's been a little annoying. Last year, a little bit of an exception, but not quite, because even last year, the Michigan-Michigan State game was a little annoying, right? Like, we're settling for a lot of field goals in the red right. zone. It, it's that slow-motion blowout. This was not that. We jumped on these motherfuckers from the very, very first snap. And 
we did it almost in the way that you typically see Ohio State put the beat down on Michigan State, which is yep. they have that passing game. Michigan State has no fucking answers for that passing game. And so they are DOA instantly, right? Yep. I mean, C.J. Stroud put that team in a fucking blender both times that he, he went up against Michigan State. And our games against Michigan State have historically just not looked like that because that's not the way that we play the game. We we didn't have the quarterback play to play it that way for a while, and it's just not how we've elected to play it. And, and yesterday, you know, this weekend, we were like, nah, <laughs> yeah. we, can play, we can play it this way now. And we did. Yep. And it slapped a million out of ten. It did, yep. I guess while we're on the offense, I want to talk a little bit about the offensive line. I thought in terms of the run game, there were some issues there. I thought Ladarius Henderson misidentified a couple things in the ground game and let a few guys get through into the backfield and and blew some shit up, which wasn't ideal. But there were a couple times, especially early, when Michigan got outside of that and got chunks, especially with Donovan Edwards on the edge. I thought, um, you know, he didn't end up with, again, like big run game numbers, but I liked the plan with him. And I think we're going to continue to see more, even more of him in like less traditional run game stuff. And just as an example of that, the uh, the second touchdown drive when it was seven nothing. If you remember right, Michigan on their first touchdown drive had a third and fourteen, where JJ like slipped out of the pocket, found Barner, and then they just kind of rolled from there. The second touchdown drive, they had a third and thirteen, and on that one, they just threw a little swing pass out to Edwards in the flat. Right, Edwards goes out in motion, like a little orbit route. And they've got Wilson and maybe Johnson or a tight end. I can't remember off the top of my head, but they've got two guys out there blocking. And they just swing it out to Edwards, and they say, we've got two blockers out there for two DBs. And then it's Edwards against a linebacker to get out of the flat. Edwards is going to win that every time. They just flipped it out to him. He went right between the blockers and got 15 yards for the first down. And like that's the kind of stuff where if you can get Edwards in space with the ball, with a linebacker chasing him, like that's money. So for sure. More of that, I think, is um, it, it feels like they're working more of that into the game plan and getting him into more opportunities that seem to like better suit his skill set. Yeah, we also saw they gave an incredibly fun stat about Blake Corum yeah. on the broadcast about his runs inside the opponent's 10 yard line. Yeah, that's right. It was that he has I'm not sure if this actually included the ones that he had in the first quarter, if, the, if this was before that but it doesn't really matter because the story doesn't change. Blake Corum has had 17 carries this year inside the opponent's 10-yard line. 13 of them have gone for touchdowns, and the other four were all runs immediately preceding Corum touchdowns. That's so so stupid. Every Corum carry inside the 10-yard line this year has ultimately led to a touchdown. Right, it's been a touchdown or a (laughs) pre-touchdown. Yeah, so any of the, like, I mean, the last couple years, there were some games, you mentioned the Michigan State game last year, like Red Zone, they had trouble finishing some drives. This, I mean, this game, a couple times, they didn't even have to get into the Red Zone because JJ's just throwing 30-yard lasers. But even when they do, Corum has been literally perfect in that department. So it, it just feels different in that regard. And that's been a big part of these games, not even being competitive on the scoreboard, let alone kind of in the flow of play. Yeah, that was crazy. There's a little more, I think, to say about the O-line. In standard organic pass rush situations, Michigan State was really struggling to get pressure. That was good to see because that is a solid defensive line. It doesn't have great rushers. They don't have great edge guys. But they're solid. So that's good. 
the only times they were really getting through was when they simply brought more guys than Michigan had blockers. And in just about every single one of those times, JJ was just, oop, like he was just Midwestern king. He was just, oop, sliding right past these guys and making plays downfield, which, I mean, that's the risk you take with a guy like that, right? It's something that defenses are going to have to think about if they want to try to speed JJ up because – for the most part, that has not gone well for opposing defenses. Um, we JJ's been torching when he's on the run. Yeah, yeah. I saw a stat from Brian at Emgo Blog who pointed out that uh, when pressured this year, JJ is a 64% passer at 11.6 yards an attempt, and that's compared to not pressured or you know kept clean yards per attempt of 10.4. So he's actually been better in terms of the expected outcome, in terms of yards per play, when teams have brought pressure than when they haven't. Because like you pointed out, he's slipping through it, he's getting out of it, he's making plays, he's finding guys downfield. It is a really dangerous proposition to do that against JJ. If you can get pressure with four, sure, then you know that's what everybody wants, right? You can keep your, your back seven in coverage, and you get pressure with four, and you speed him up without sacrificing anything. But we haven't seen many teams be able to do that. And when they have... JJ has won that battle. Right. And I mean, Michigan's receivers, in particular Roman Wilson, which I think is why his touchdown numbers are so up, are getting very, very good at running the scramble drill. Yes. Yeah. Compared right. to the Penn State game, which we're going to talk about later. I, I was mean, just going to say, <laughs> they were fucking useless. Right. There was a situation where Aller slipped out of the pocket and they've he's rolling to the sideline. And generally what you have there is this idea of basically levels where guys go to different different spots at different depths to give the quarterback options as he's rolling to that side of the field. In the Penn State game, we saw a receiver and a tight end standing next to each other 15 yards downfield with three defenders there, and Aller just has to chuck it away. Like, anytime you have multiple receivers standing next to each other with defenders around them, somebody's fucked up because you're just drawing more players into the area. And we've seen the opposite from Michigan. Almost every time, like you said, when there has been a play to be made, you've got guys breaking open, breaking into right positions. Sometimes it's A.J. Barner, like on that third and 14 to open the game and really get Michigan rolling on that first drive where he's running, uh, I think, an in about 15 yards upfield. As J.J. breaks out to the right, Barner rolls with him, gives him a nice window right in between the, the spots in the zone, and he hits him. And then the, uh, the Roman Wilson touchdown, right, same thing. That one he had a... a, a Defensive tackle started to come off of, uh, I think, Zach Zinter, and Zinter kind of pushed him past. J.J. slips through that, rolls out to the right. He's got Wilson running across the goal line with him, hits him in stride. And, yeah, that's that's a huge a huge part of what J.J. has been able to do there is the receivers playing the game with him and giving him those opportunities. So that's something Michigan has just really, really gotten sharp with and has taken the offense to another level. Yeah, so we'll talk about the end of half situation here before we (laughs) close out the discussion of the offense. This was very annoying. So, you know, Michigan is driving. They're running the, like, it was less than two minutes, but like two-minute drill. They had about a minute and a half. It was a a good drive, actually, to get down to about the uh, the 10-yard line or so with around 30 seconds left, right? Yeah. So very effective in that regard. And then they throw a pass to Donovan Edwards in the middle of the field, right? He throws a little check down to Edwards at about the three or four yard line. Right. He gets tackled in bounds and Michigan's got, I don't know, like 20-ish seconds left at that point. Yeah, I think like 23 seconds or something. And yeah, they come up to the line and you're thinking they're probably going to spike it, but they decide not to. I think because at that point it was second down. So if you spike it, you've only got one more play and they're thinking, okay, well, there's like 20 seconds left. We don't want to burn it down. 
but instead of spiking it, JJ, you know, makes a call. He backs up into the shotgun, and Edwards is standing behind him, and Edwards is backing up with him and kind of shuffling back and forth, like trying to get into the right position or figure out where is the right position. Yeah. And they get him for not being set for one second before the snap. It's a false start. Right. And under the circumstances, because Michigan has no timeouts, the false start results in a 10-second runoff, and it's the end of the half because there was eight seconds left on the clock by the time this was all occurring. Now, the frustrating thing from for Matt and I was it felt like both of those things could not possibly be true, which is to say either he was set for one second or they got the playoff with more than 10 seconds remaining and we should have had one second left. Right, because Edwards finally gets set just, you know, about a second before the snap. It's very close. You could argue that it was uh, not quite a full second, but that's the problem is he got set with about 12 seconds left. And then JJ kind of, you know, he does his clap, they snap the ball, and it looks like there's 11 seconds just, just before it flips to 10. And because it's a false start, it's a dead ball, Right. So the clock should have stopped at 11 seconds from my point of view. And that was the frustration. It was right? really it was, close. I mean, it we, was close. We rewound it a couple of times, and it does feel like the ball is getting snapped right at the moment that the clock changes from t- 11 to 10. Right. And so it's really close. I think, I think they probably just should have spiked it. But. They probably should have, yeah. But, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it is frustrating just that when you see Edwards being set for almost a full second. And also we've seen several times this year that that never gets called. Right. We complained about it specifically with respect to Rutgers' punting. Right. They run up to the line, they snap the ball, and it's like, eh, that wasn't a full second, but it's like three quarters of a second, whatever. Like, who cares, basically, seems to be that the, the way that officials usually call this. And to call it so pedantically there and also not even go back and look at the clock to see if there actually were 11 seconds left, which I think there were, that was frustrating. They treated it like there were just eight seconds left. And then the 10-second runoff, but the clock should have been dead at the snap, not at right. the end of the, the play. The part that was more frustrating for me is that they didn't even contemplate the fact that there was something to review as far right. as the discrepancy between the clock and the runoff, right? The you know Was there 10 seconds or 11 seconds before we do this 10-second runoff? And right, that should have at the very least been a, a reviewed situation because I think there should have been one on the clock. If not, it was a split second that there's no way you could decide in real time so at the very least review it but I mean we're talking about whether this was a 56 to nothing game or a 49 to nothing game so whatever it doesn't matter (laughs) no it doesn't matter to any of the gamblers either because Michigan covered and hit the over all by itself so it didn't end up mattering at all it doesn't matter not maybe JJ he could have had one and and AJ Barner that would have been nice to just pad the numbers a little bit more there for JJ's Heisman campaign now that he is the uh the front runner apparently yeah yeah I suppose but it doesn't really matter no talk about the defense yeah they were beyond lights out I mean, obviously, there were no points scored by Michigan State in this game, so I don't really know how much there is to say. No, we did have the one very briefly annoying moment on the first Michigan State drive where they threw the little check down and the guy broke a tackle, and I was like, oh, God, yeah, all right, we're going to have this. Barrett misses the tackle. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was annoying. So they get the first down, and that was pretty much it. I was, I got to say, I was really stunned at how totally unprepared or uninteresting Michigan State was just schematically on offense. Like, even, you know, Rutgers, Minnesota, Indiana, they all had something that they'd schemed up early in the game that worked for a few minutes, right? Something where they had watched Michigan and come up with a plan, at least, even if Michigan sussed it out and 
you know, kind of killed it pretty quickly. In Michigan State, I just did not see a single goddamn thing. It was the most wildly vanilla, predictable stuff, not a single trick play in the bag. I just, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that I had at least twice that I can remember where I was like, oh, they're running the toss sweep here, and they run it, and it gets blown up for like a three-yard loss, and I'm just like, if I can identify this, come on, like, this can't be that easy. What what are you guys doing? Yeah, I mean, it was particularly jarring because you're right. Okay, we've seen these first few games, and Indiana had the double pass, and you know, Minnesota. Minnesota had the the outside zone runs, right, where right. they were doubling the defensive tackles and making Michigan's linebackers play differently than they previously had to adjust to that. Like something, there are ideas here that it's probably not going to work for long, but there are things that you can do to get Michigan out of its element a little bit. Yeah. And there was none of that. Right. It's so jarring in comparison to like the D'Antonio drive. Like you, like when we played Michigan state under D'Antonio, you knew damn well that there was a drive that that motherfucker has been working on since the last time you played, he's been working on drive for eight fucking months and he's ready. And so it was so jarring to be like, this is it? Yeah, we kept waiting. Like, okay, they're, they're going to have something, right? And no. Like, they just when, didn't. when does the bullshit come? Like, they ran a fucking Philly special against us in 2017. <laughs> and there's like, always a trick play. There's usually multiple trick play or, or things that are, you know, counters off of what they've been doing a lot of. It's just, it's things where you're like, yeah, they've been saving that for Michigan. And not on this one. I mean, it was maybe, like, I called out the toss sweeps, but I thought the passing game was probably even worse. I mean, in the first half... Caden Hauser had far more throws that should have been picked than ones that were actually completed. Like it was a miracle that he got out of there with no picks in the first half cuz I mean it should have been at least 3. And then of course the second half started and it took all of one drive for that to change where <laughs> Mikey Sainer still reads the uh the fourth down fade and steps right into it and and runs it back 75 yards for the touchdown and, and it's 35 nothing but anyway Hauser just the passing game schemed nothing. I mean, almost every throw was into double coverage or into a, a player where there's a defender in better position than the receiver. And, I mean, his arm strength, like, a couple times he was throwing outs and they're like... No, it was... I was stunned because, like, you know, we're watching J.J. McCarthy most of the time. And there was a moment where Hauser throws an out in this game and the, like... The play-by-play guys or whatever. Are I think like, it was Todd Blackledge. Blackledge says something about his arm strength. He's like, he's got the arm. And I was like, does he? Because it feels like that ball took not nine Mississippis to get there. <laughs> right, that ball's he's fluttering so out to the sideline, and Josh Wallace almost picks it off. And it's like, well, that's why that's why it's hard to throw that kind of route against cover three for a lot of college teams is your quarterback just doesn't have the arm strength. But, I mean, Hauser's like 6'3", 215, and you would think that a guy with that size would have the arm to kind of go with that. It just did not look like it at all. And no, I'm literally like one Mississippi, two <laughs> Mississippi. Because that shit was not, it was so slow. I was like, oh my God. And then that, I had a moment where I was like, oh, I'm spoiled. J.J. Yes. McCarthy has spoiled <laughs> me because damn, yeah. that fluttery We're ass. We're going to be back to reality next year, unfortunately. fluttery ass fucking out route. I was like, be serious. That is not arm strength. Don't lie. I don't gaslight me. Yeah, I was I was pretty stunned at how bad Hauser looked in that game. And it, I mean, to some extent, when all you have is like NFL open, where it has to be the kind of throw that only JJ can make, like, okay, you're not going to make that very often, but it looked even worse than that. I, I thought Noah Kim looked better from what I'd seen earlier in the year. But then again, this whole offense is so trashed right now that I, I just don't think it matters for Michigan State. Anyway, for Michigan, we already knew this was 
mean, obviously one of the best defenses in the country, and this just felt like more evidence of that. It was total dominance in the ground game, despite heavily rotating the defensive tackles. I mean, I said I kind of wanted to see more of, like, just put your best out there and let them play. They didn't, and it didn't matter at all. I mean, Kenneth Grant, Cam Good, Rashawn Benny, those guys all looked basically just as dominant as the starters. <laughs> so when you can do that, I mean, it, it was, I think, most evident on the uh, the fourth and two on Michigan State's first drive, right? The one moment in the game where it kind of felt like they had hope, where it's yeah. fourth and two from, I think, their 49, just just short of midfield. And, uh, and they run Nate Carter, like, power uh, up the gut. No chance. It, yeah, it was just like DOA. Yeah, and when you think that's your best option to get two yards against Michigan's defense, like really you should be punting. But I, I kind of get it. Like you're a massive underdog. Michigan's just like rolled right down the field and scored a touchdown, and it kind of feels like we got to do I mean, something. They never here. got into our red zone, did they? I don't think they ran a play in Michigan's territory until the second half. On maybe the it might have been their first drive of the second half where they got like two first downs and the announcers made some comment like well it seems like they've really adjusted and got the run game working here i'm like that is i guess one interpretation here of getting two first down, <laughs> first downs on one possession don't gaslight me these people are lying they were trying hard at that point that's that's when you're deep into garbage time and you've got you know 27 minutes of game time left and you're like Oof, we got <laughs> we got some work to do here right so yeah, I mean, there's just not a lot of interesting stuff. That's when they stuff. start talking about how J.J. meditates and takes cold showers. Correct, yes. It's fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, so there's just there wasn't really that much interesting from this game. It was a complete shutdown, a, you know, first shutout of the year, right? Correct. Uh, it was nice to come against Michigan State. Yeah, oh, and, and speaking of which, late in the game, we got the Jaden McBurrow's revenge interception, which was really just a perfect karmic, like, one more little fuck you to you know on top of the Sunday yeah and I mean besides that the last play of the game if I recall correctly was a green team was German green yeah. yeah they made sure he got out there just to just to be able to get one uh, tally in the stat column it was like I said it was everything we wanted to be in it all was the best storybook, ways honestly it, it really was it was yeah. amazing and, and on McBurrows by the way I mean in the postgame interview like Harbaugh does his thing where he like answers one question and then ducks after like 12 seconds Correct. And then he brings Mikey Sainer still over, right? I think first it was Colston Loveland and then Mikey Sainer still, if I remember right. I think right. that's right, yeah. Yeah, so so Mikey's going through his interview, and he's, you know, doing his Mikey thing. Like, he always comes across as, like, an unbelievable leader, awesome guy. And then the uh, the interviewer is actually kind of trying to wrap up the interview. And they're like, well, thanks thanks very much, Mikey. And he's like, hold up, hold up. This interview's not over because I'm getting Jaden McBurrows over here and making sure everybody acknowledges what he did in this game after what happened last year. It was just very much, like leader stuff that you love to see i'm gonna cry at senior day over oh blake God. Corum and mikey saner stuff i'm like i'm literally going to cry tears i already know yeah i mean this guy is uh he, he's already a michigan legend and for a guy who came in as a slot receiver who like you know didn't really have a, a great fit on the michigan offense but but had his moments to become what he is now on this team which is truly one of the you know one or two like vocal leaders and like one of the best players on this defense, on, on maybe the best defense in the country. It's they kept talking about the Haitian mac and cheese. That's I don't even know what that is exactly, but it sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. I'm like I'm googling it. Mikey, can I get the recipe? <laughs> you don't have to make it for me. Yeah, we'll make it. I bet it rules though. I'm like I'm googling Haitian mac and cheese. 
Blake Corum said it was good, and Mikey knows how to make it. So, so, like, so what's the Haitian component? Okay, I'm Googling. This is from damnspicy.com. <laughs> that, that sounds authentic. It sounds legit. Don't know. And now I have to do the thing where I read about this person's whole life story. Until they Let's get past recipe. that. Jump to recipe. <laughs> we need okay. ingredients here. What is Haitian here? Evaporated milk, mayonnaise, gouda. This doesn't strike me as particularly Haitian. It just has like bell peppers in it. I don't know. This seems and gouda wrong. and that sounds smooth though. Like I'll, I'll still eat it. I mean, it's mac and cheese. I, Mikey, you have to tell me what's in the. It seems like there are iterations of it that have ground beef in it. Okay. I, like I need to know. I want to make so it maybe in, ground beef peppers. Let me make it at Thanksgiving in your honor, Mikey. I'm taking this to my family in, in advance of the Michigan Ohio State game and being like, "This is Mikey Sanders." Still's if anybody can get Haitian. Mikey on the podcast to give us the recipe, Haitian mac and cheese. Hit us up. I'm dying to know. I re- I will make it in your honor. Um, Absolutely will. But the last thing I think I had to say about the defense was just the penalty on the pick six. Oh, yeah. Which pissed me the fuck off. I was furious. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the dirtier hits I've ever uh, ever seen, where you've got Braden McGregor on the ground, face down, and Spencer Brown launches helmet first right into the back of McGregor's head. And thank God the officials saw it and and ejected him immediately. You hardly ever see that, where, like, an in-play action results in an immediate ejection. But it was very warranted, because that is incredibly... That's the kind of stuff that should be getting a two-game big big 10 suspension like we talked about in the other the other episode yeah, around the uh, sign stealing suspension Fuck yeah you. i mean that's really what the big 10 sportsmanship's rules are there for is is stuff like that where like intent to injure during the play that stuff absolutely cannot be allowed although i mean honestly playing the string out for this michigan state team feels almost as bad as not playing the string out for this michigan state team can we team, talk so about how absolutely fucking hysterical the athletics reporting about Michigan State not wanting to participate oh, in the yeah. game for the health and safety of its players. It's been a long is. few days. I'd forgotten about that, because, but that okay, is so unbelievable. When the, when the sign stealing stuff broke, there was you know some article. I, was it Quinn? Brennan Quinn? I can't yes, remember. Yes, that's who right. Was he was the, the one who had the uh, the source within Michigan State who was communicating about like their side of the story like be so fucking for real number one the way you play football is a hazard to everybody okay you burned if anybody's my concerned corneas. about health and safety <laughs> you burned my corneas well i thought you meant like it should be michigan if anybody's concerned about i mean health and i was safety. getting there but okay, i was making sorry. my joke first god no, I'm, I'm, I'm ruining it but like no that was an affront to my health and safety, thank you. But also, yeah, fuck off. Like, when I read that, I was like, you would think they were the ones whose players got assaulted last year, not ours, from the way they're mm-hmm. talking about this shit. And then they're like, the health and safety, what health and safety? Spencer Brown is just headbutting people at the back of their heads. Be so fucking for real. I couldn't believe, I like, I laughed myself into oblivion when I saw that. I was like, be serious. You don't want to get body bagged. And right. I know it and you know it, so stop lying. And then they got body bagged and it was cool. I mean, also like, I know we talked a lot about, about this on the other episode, but I mean, the allegations like, okay, just switch your signs. That's pretty easy. <laughs> this is not something that like okay, in really fairness, changes. It does seem like switching your signs is kind of hard. Because not that like the process of actually switching them is hard. That seems easy enough. 
But like, if you're the players and you have to commit them to memory and relearn them, like that does feel a little taxing. But I mean, most have teams to... have multiple sets that they rotate through and they but change them from game to game. all of them have been compromised by Connor Stallions aspiring. I guess that's possible. Then, then like, just use a wristband. Having to redo them or does... huddle. <laughs> right, just huddle, guys. Like and that's basically what they did, right? Right. Which makes it all the funnier that Michigan beat the shit out of them in a way that hadn't been done in 65 years or whatever it was because yeah, you, have, saying, you have no actual excuse Having here. to change your signs doesn't actually feel like it's super easy. It feels like it does require some substantial, like, not substantial, but, like, reasonable effort to do. That's all. It's probably annoying, but that's fine. They were never going to cancel. It, this was just bitch baby bullshit. And, yeah, it was funny. A million yeah. out of ten, actually. <laughs> like, it's very funny to, like, run over to the, like, trot over to the sideline and be like, what now, coach? <laughs> and have the coach tell you exactly what to do. And, like, you huddle with your little team, and then you're like, ha-ha, they can't see us now. And then you eat a three-yard TFL. That's amazing. <laughs> that's so good. Like, sorry. Shut up. It was very funny. It, shut up. I'm I'm so sick of y'all. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna kick your ass, and we did kick your ass, and we did it without any sign stealing because you were playing fucking ring around the rosy with your coach, and that's when you got the signals. Shut the, shut up. And also because this Michigan State team is atrocious. They are exactly what we knew them to be, and Michigan is exactly what we knew Michigan to be. And on that note, actually, you know, you mentioned earlier the did we really get beat that bad stat, and, and yes. Uh, I think this was like the fifth or sixth time this year maybe out of eight games that they've been number one in that list with like the biggest play-to-play success uh, win rate over their opponent. And in SP+, Plus, oh boy, Michigan is not only still number one, but that gap has widened substantially. Now number two, Georgia, is 4.7 points behind Michigan. That is by far the biggest gap there's been between any number one and number two this year. And you can just really see the separation starting there. I also looked at FEI, which I think is an interesting one as a counter. Similar formula, but a little bit more geared toward efficiency over explosiveness. And based on that, you will, be, you will not be surprised to learn that Michigan is even further ahead of number two in that ranking, which is Ohio State. But uh, anyway, Michigan is really separating from the pack here. I think at this point they have something like the seventh best FEI rating from the last 20 years, like however long FEI has existed. I mean, and this is all opponent adjusted. This is not, you you ain't played nobody anymore. What was the uh, Matt Brown headline that you read? Well, yeah, there was some some back and forth about whether there was more parity in college football this year. I think it has kind of seemed that way at times, right? But there was a stat going around, I think it was during the games on Saturday, that teams ranked in the top 15 at the time of the game when double-digit favorites have gone 76-1 and one this year. Yeah, Am that's I remembering right. right. That's correct. So teams toward the top have been very dominant. There have not really been many major upsets. And the counterpoint to that that some people were making was, but it seems like the teams themselves at the top, like those top 15, are more compressed. There hasn't been like an obvious, you know, 2019 LSU or 2020 BAM, a a team where it was just like, oh, this is a juggernaut. And his response was, Michigan might prove to be that Death Star. And this is an Ohio State writer who runs a a college sports, an extra points account is what it's, extra points newsletter. He does very good college sports work. Probably one of the better uh, Ohio State people you're ever going to find out there, but just seeing that and seeing the acknowledgement between all the advanced metrics that 
oh, this team is separating into, like, elite levels that we only see from national championship teams. It just, we're getting more and more evidence every week that, like, this really might be that team. Yeah, we are. And it scares me to death because, you know, <laughs> not only do we have now, a, a you know, another pending NCAA investigation looming over this team and, you know, threatening to compromise that. We talked at length about what we think the risk of that is in our other episode. But regardless, we've got that. But it just feels like, man. <sighs> the opportunity has never been more right in front of Michigan, at least not in my adult lifetime. Or mine. I mean, my whole life. Like, literally my entire, I was five in 1997. Like, basically right. <laughs> my whole life, not just my adult life. And so it, it makes every game that much scarier because it's like, man, please don't fuck this up because this is the best, might be the best opportunity we have in my life. <laughs> I would really like it to might capitalize be. I mean, Michigan just it. doesn't, like, there aren't many teams who get to this level. We've seen it occasionally from Georgia or Bama or LSU, but, and maybe Ohio State has gotten to that level or close to that a few times, but it just, it does not come around that often for anybody. No, and right now, and especially not for us. Right, especially not for Michigan and the way that they typically recruit. And you know, development has certainly been there. That's been a a very very strong point under the uh, under Harbaugh, right, relative to just about anybody. But it takes a lot of things coming together in the right way to have this kind of team and this kind of opportunity. I, I will say, we talked a little bit earlier in the year about you, know, you mentioned it feels like every game is kind of a like a, a huge pitfall but also not because I think Michigan has built themselves enough margin for error that even if they drop a game somewhere along the way if they beat Ohio State at the end or certainly Penn State and Ohio State they're winning the Big Ten East of course and they're playing for the Big Ten Championship and they'll go to the playoff is what I'm saying if Michigan uh, a one-loss Michigan team wins the Big Ten I don't think there's any doubt about that so in some sense the other games are, are kind of mulligans. But Michigan doesn't play them that way. I mean, we haven't seen a game this year or anything even close to it where Michigan has not looked like they came to play, like they came to put that team away and move on with, you know, one more, one more win in the quiver that says, yeah, we're the best team in the country. So it's... Uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to say about it, but I just keep looking at these numbers every week, and every week Michigan looks even further and further removed. And if I'm not mistaken, the last four games in a row, Michigan has won by a greater and greater margin, and Bill Connolly pointed out, has outperformed SP Plus by more and more every week. I think they're averaging an outperformance of like 19.9 points or something like that relative to the expected SP Plus margin in each of these games. So Michigan's getting better every week and that's the really remarkable thing here it's like I don't know where the ceiling is for this team I mean the ceiling might be 2019 LSU 2021 Georgia like that really is within the realm of possibility here so it's pretty fun yeah and I mean that opinion was only confirmed when I took a look around what was happening in the rest of the country and conference is it time for me to get into the mid-off that took place on big noon kickoff last week Goddamn right it is let's do it okay can we start I feel like we should just start with the caveats right up front 
what Should caveats? We do that? My caveats are these teams suck. <laughs> <laughs> My caveats were going to be that I, I think the defenses were pretty impressive. Penn State's in particular, I thought, did a, a very good job of getting pressure. And Except of, for the three times they lost Marvin Harrison Jr. Right, the, the one late touchdown especially. They had two guys run into each other crossing the field, and that was just shitty luck, and Harrison ends up breaking free. They did bust a couple times there. But on the whole, I thought Penn State's defense was was impressive. Just and Ohio get Marvin Harrison, though. Uh, right, yes. I mean, like, there's a various obvious... like. Be dumber, Manny Diaz. I mean, this has happened like three or four times in the last month. Is you're watching an Ohio State game and it's like, man, they are really struggling to move the ball, and all of a sudden Marvin Harrison's running downfield. And there's nobody within 20 yards of him, and it's like, that's the one thing. <laughs> Don't do the one thing. But anyway, I just wanted to lay that out that I, I do think Ohio State's defense has gotten better, also at big play prevention, at least based on the offenses we've seen them play this year. Can they do that against Michigan? TBD. But they have looked better. And Penn State's defense, I think, is one of the top three in the country. So the defenses, I just wanted to say up front, like unbiasedly, I think these are, I think Penn State has an elite defense. And I think Ohio State's is a very good to elite defense. Very good, pending whether they can actually play the way they've tried to play this year against Michigan, because that's the one that's going to determine what they actually are. Yeah. Now I've got that out of the way, and you can go back to (laughs) the important stuff. Yeah. Okay. First. It just feels like James Franklin makes absolutely no effort to put his team in a position to win games. Because literally, what the fuck were they doing? Okay, we were racking our brains on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning trying to recall if we can even think of or, of, or remember like th- more than three downfield attempts in this game. And I can we, remember one for sure, and, and maybe two. I think I remember a second one, but it's hazy. Like, there's just no, like, in the same way that we talked about Michigan State, and we were like, you have nothing. Like, how do you have nothing in your bag for a game like this? Right. It felt very similar for Franklin and Penn State. Right. All that discussion we've had about Drew Aller and Penn State not being able to push the ball down the field. We talked about this, and it was like, well, how, what are you going to do against a defense that athletically can just match your guys? And the answer was jack shit. It was absolutely nothing. So it's like, okay, we had this take in the in the preseason, and I clipped it, actually, and put it <laughs> on Twitter, apropos of nothing, except actually apropos, apropos of everything, everything we, saw on Saturday. we just saw. But, you know, there was just this foregone conclusion that you know, Drew Aller was going to take a step forward on Sean Clifford. And I think both of us were like, that seems possible. But saying that it will happen or that it's probable feels extraordinarily bold with no... Right, it was just the expectation from everybody that, like, Drew Aller is going to be for Penn State what J.J. was for Michigan. And, like, maybe. He is very talented. I don't think you can dispute that. But also, Sean Clifford was very good. And as a junior senior, I mean, he was... Him just pulling shit out of his ass was a lot of what they had on offense. But the other thing about it that, like, I was like, "Come on, people! Like, let's let's use our let's use our brains. Let's fire some synapses here." Because the thing that I was stunned that nobody was talking about when they were making this prediction, they were just talking about Aller's, you know, recruiting profile and rankings and the arm and all yep. this stuff. And I was like, "Yes, but this is a pocket passer behind a garbage offensive line." Like, let's talk about this for a minute because yep. so much of Penn State's 
offensive success post Saquon, but up to this point, has been Sean Clifford fucking improvising things or Trace McSorley improvising things. Since 2018, that's really been the focal point of the offense is improvisation by an athletic quarterback. Right, it's like athletic quarterback gets the ball to K.J. Hamler and that's the fucking offense. Right, or scrambles for eight yards because, you know, he's getting immediate pressure and and especially on this team because Penn State's receivers are really rough. I mean, that I was kind of defending Aller to some extent during this game because... There couldn't have been more than about three plays all game where he actually had somebody with meaningful separation. We mentioned the one earlier. And even when they did, it was drop city. Right. Had a, a key drop on the, the first drive of the game, right? Their first third down attempt. And then he had the one that I mentioned earlier in the context of Michigan's improv game where he rolls out. He's looking you know, toward the sideline like, somebody help me. And he's got two guys just standing there with three defenders around them. And it's like, this is, this is what your passing game is? Like, this is it? Yeah, it was brutal to watch. I said on Twitter, and I stand by it, I want a gag order on Penn State as a contender discussions until something substantial changes. Because here's the thing. Aller, I think a lot of people were just trying to get in on the Penn State Aller. They wanted to look smart by getting in on it early, I think. Yeah. And, And right. And, you know, you and I both thought it was a little too early, right? Well, especially the... Aller like being ranked ahead of JJ by people talking about Big Ten quarterbacks like I mean right from from the get-go this year JJ has been putting up astronomical numbers and Aller looked promising against some you know pretty iffy competition sure Michigan was playing iffy competition too but JJ established himself last year JJ looked better than promising against that competition for the most part right the the reasonable expectation was that JJ was the best quarterback in the Big Ten going in unless you saw you know something really really special from Aller. And I thought Aller looked pretty good through the first few weeks. And then you finally get up against a defense where they there's just not a lot nothing. of plays there for you and there was nothing. And they he could do nothing about it. Nothing. Jack shit. They couldn't run the ball for right. shit. He ended up 18 for 42 at about two yards an attempt. Two. That's so gross. I mean, but even before this, it was like four yards in attempt. Like, he really does not throw the ball downfield Right, yeah. No, the numbers are not big because... If they're a big, like, throw four-yard passes and get a lot of yak team. Right, and like, it's because of the point you mentioned, that the offensive line can't hold up and the receivers can't get separation downfield. So th- there's no point really trying to let that develop. We, you need to take the dink and dunk stuff and hope that you can make guys miss. And that's it's kind of what they got. And again, against a team that can athletically match up with you, that's not there, and there is absolutely nothing else. That's not a winning formula. I mean, I, you know, we talked a lot about Penn State in the preseason, and they were getting a lot of hype, and they looked really good, and they put up 63 points on UMass or whatever the fuck. I like how you call it the preseason, as in just... <laughs> no, I literally mean before the season. Oh, okay. Like, just, just like the, the general I mean like, vibe. I mean like August. Okay. I mean like July <laughs> when we were previewing I thought you meant region. against like West Virginia. No, no, no. Okay. yeah, fair no, enough. No, no, no. I literally mean in the run-up to the season. I mean the summer. We got a lot of hype for them as a potential contender, both in the Big Ten and for the national championship. And I remember thinking, okay, but even if Aller is better than Clifford, right? I got to see Penn State get better in other places, too. It it didn't feel like as easy a lift as J.J., which is the offensive line is there, the running backs are there, the receivers are there, the defense is there. With a returning playoff team with – probably an upgraded quarter like all right. of the other pieces were it's obviously not like oh we have a swiss cheese offensive line and now we're putting a statue behind it like be serious i, I yeah. couldn't believe 
the like lackluster analysis. Like let's let's think forward just a little bit. And it's the it's the cycle, right? Penn State goes ten and two. Penn State plays a New Year Six bowl game. Penn State wins. Penn State gets tons of preseason hype. Penn State goes ten and two. Penn State plays <laughs> like that. Yeah. Really does feel like the cycle. I think it was Nick Baumgartner who said on Twitter, Penn State feels like the most stuck program in the country right now because every year they're going to win nine or ten games, and it just doesn't feel like they're actually getting any closer to beating Michigan or Ohio State. In fact, if anything, Michigan seems to have leveled up to where they're not playing on Penn State's level anymore. So now there's two programs definitively ahead of Penn State. And in, in this year where it does feel like Ohio State was there to be got, Penn State looked terrible. And so I, I don't know what you do with that if you're Penn State, but it, it, that felt right to me that it just feels like that's what they are. And I, that's pretty good, but that really does seem to be where they're topping out, and I haven't seen anything that indicates that that's going to change anytime soon. No, me either, and it must be frustrating for their fans, but, you know, this game came down to which one of these teams had Marvin Harrison Jr., and that was Ohio State, and that was basically it. It wasn't like Ohio State was a whole lot better offensively in this game. No. They also kind of struggled to move the ball. It was pretty ugly. To be fair, they didn't have Emeka Ibuka or Trevion Henderson, but that's also kind of what they've looked like for a lot of the years. I mean, in most of their games, other than like Western Kentucky, they played well and Purdue, they kind of lit up, but like the majority of their games this year, they've looked kind of like that. Just not, I mean, not against the level of defense Penn state was. So that exacerbated the existing problems where left tackle couldn't really hold up. McCord wasn't really finding guys or making things happen unless Marvin Harrison was breaking free and, yeah, that really did feel like the difference in the game. I mean, Penn State had the uh, the defensive touchdown. They got called back on a holding, and if you if you flip that call and Penn State takes a you know a, a touchdown lead in this game, in a game where both teams really really struggled to move the ball on offense, the outcome might have been different. But then again, Penn State couldn't score at all on offense, so maybe Ohio State still would have had just enough to to get past it. It was it was just a really ugly game, which was actually pretty fun i mean no i I said before the game like for narrative purposes the important thing is that this is hideous regardless of the outcome and that turned out way better yeah it was more hideous than i could have possibly dreamed of but the the other thing was that i I just you know ohio state obviously mccord's getting a lot of pressure he took he took some hits in this game um the protection was just not there. I mean, we know that Penn State's ends are, are quite good, but... At one point, Chop Robinson left the game, though, and I don't think he returned. So this was... Uh, they played, like, half the game yeah, without Robinson. it looked like he was concussed. Um, yes, correct. So it shouldn't be anything that would hold him out, you know, through Michigan, but it might put him, you know, on ice for, like, a week, something like that. But it was, you know, Ohio State, it was like, if you squint... Sometimes they look like the Ohio State we become accustomed to seeing, you know, for the past five years, but they really don't look like the same version. I mean, we've seen Michigan get a much better version of this offense for the last two years and hold it in check. So, I mean, you know, unless that Ohio State defense is so markedly better than it was a year ago that it can bridge the gap that has to be it for them because McCord's just not he's not going to get to CJ Stroud's levels this year that's not happening he's not going to become CJ Stroud in four weeks at this point we we know what he is he's okay I think he's done a decent job this year but 
he's just not CJ Stroud. He's not close to CJ Stroud, and the offense is not close. So I think in SP Plus, their offense is now down to 16th, which is, I mean, that's, again, fine. That's, like, pretty good. But you're talking about an offense that has been number one or number two almost every week for about the past two, three, four years. I mean, in the Ryan Day era, top three is the norm for them. Yeah, so 16th I mean, is a, barring USC and Caleb Williams uh, and right. whatever the Sometimes you have another team that pops yeah. out. I think Tennessee was swapping back and forth with them at number one and number two last year for a while when Hendon Hooker really had that passing game rolling. But, yeah, I mean, top two, top three is, is where they've lived at. Both of those teams looked not scary. Yeah. I mean, they really didn't. Penn State, there were a couple of things. That, of course, Marvin Harrison Jr. is still scary. I'm not going to pretend he's not scary. But someone's got to get Marvin Harrison Jr. the ball, and that's a much more difficult proposition. And Penn State's defensive backs were sticky. Like, I was like, okay, they yeah. might cause problems. Other the than other a couple hand, busts, like when they were actually in coverage, they were, they were there and making plays on the ball. And that on was the other impressive. hand, the interior of that defensive line looks just as susceptible as we thought it did. Well, right, Ohio and... State couldn't do anything against that. So that kind of felt like, you know, the same as trying to assess the um, – the Penn like, State secondary. Your or, defensive sorry, backs are sticky, but let's let's only throw fifteen passes. Like we like that. It seems like that might be a viable way to play that game. I guess I just don't know what they're going to do game plan wise. But Penn State's really going to struggle to move the ball against Michigan. 100%. I mean, Michigan's defense I still feel like is better than Ohio State's from what I've seen, and I see no reason to think that Penn State's offense is going to look markedly different. So I don't know what they're going to have in that game. It seems unlikely that they're going to score more than you know, I'd be 10 curious points. about I, I don't pay attention to Ohio State's defensive play calling as much as I do Michigan's but like were they sitting back in a zone in this game against Aller or were they just manning up and saying make your plays because the one thing that you know has frustrated us repeatedly is that we do give up those like five six yards we like we do play a soft zone a lot of the time in Sometimes. our kind of bend but don't break situation and so you know might Penn State dink and dunk a little bit in the game yeah I, I think I mean so. they will try like we saw Indiana do that right and that worked for about I don't know nine minutes and then Michigan mostly played man and underneath zone and Indiana had negative 10 yards the rest of the way yeah so like I, I think Penn State will do that I also think Michigan is like they're obviously going to take that game seriously. So if they think that that's the approach to beat Penn State, I think we'll see more of it. I just don't know what Penn State's going to be able to do, and Ohio State's going to be going to be interesting. It's like you said, hard to know exactly what to make of that defense right now and what that looks like against Michigan, against a team that is structured very differently and designed in a way to beat you in a totally different way than Penn State wants to. So I just don't think we're going to know the answer to that until. Saturday after Thanksgiving, right? There's nobody that looks quite like Michigan, and there might not be a team in the country that has Michigan's level of quarterback play right now on top of the way that they are designed to kind of fundamentally target something that is a weakness for both Ohio State and Penn State. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah. You had a qualm this weekend about decisions on fourth down. I'm going to give you the floor here. I did, and this came up especially during the Ohio State-Penn State game. But I've seen it in probably, I don't know, it's come up in like five other games over the past two ASU. weeks. ASU. ASU, yes. We're going to talk about that uh, ASU-Washington game a little bit from late Saturday night. But So it came up in the Penn State-Ohio State game where it's 10-6 to Ohio State late in the third quarter, and Ohio State drives down to the Penn State one-yard line. They've got third and goal. They run Mayan Williams up the gut, or they try to run Mayan Williams get up the gut, 
and one of Penn State's defensive ends cuts inside, blows it up for a loss of like a yard, yard and a half. So it's fourth and goal from about the two and a half. Again, Penn State's offense has done absolutely nothing to this point in the game, and it's 10-6 Ohio State. So your options are you kick the extra point. I mean, I'm calling it an extra point. Like you kick the chip shot field goal that is functionally an extra point, and you go up a touchdown. Or you go for it, and you try to put the game away, but with the caveat that you've just got blown up on third and short. Everybody in America, every fucking person who watches college football in America knows you are Ohio State. We've watched you for the last three years. You cannot run the ball for two and a half yards from the goal line, especially against this defense. So I'm watching this, and we were kind of going back and forth about, like, uh, would you kick? Would you go for it? And I think you said, I'd probably go for it. And I'm like, ah, I, I can't. If I'm Ohio State, like, I can't run the ball. They know I'm going to try to target something short on the outside. Like, I just feel like that's so predictable. It's never going to work. You should just take the points, take the one touchdown lead in a game where nobody can score. This is a Big Ten West game. Play it like it's the Big Ten West. And what do they do? They, they run a little rollout pass to, to Carnell Tate at the one-yard line. He gets immediately hit and tackled, and, and it comes up short. And I'm just, like, I'm, like, apoplectic watching this. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, everybody in the world knows the only way that you can convert this, and you do it anyway, and you end up with three defenders for two blockers, and you get blown up, because of course you do. Like, Penn State knows that. And this has been a trend for a couple weeks now. I mean, we talked last week about that Oregon-Washington game, which was an awesome game. But... Oregon went three times in that game on fourth and three, or fourth and goal from the three. And all three times they threw, and all three times were incomplete. And I just kind of feel like there are a lot of decisions that are happening around the country right now where it's almost swung too far. Like, I feel like this is a boomer take right now, but like fourth down decision-making has swung too far toward this is kind of a 50-50 call, I'm going to go for it. And the problem with that is that it just feels divorced from what your team actually is and what your identity is and what you're able to do. We mentioned it with the uh, with Michigan State, right, on their first drive of the game. It's fourth and two from near midfield, and I get it. Like, again, you're a huge underdog. You're already down 7 nothing. It kind of feels like you probably have to make something happen. But if it's fourth and two with your offensive line against Michigan's interior defensive line that has given up nothing on the ground this year, if you really think your best option to get a little over two yards is to go up the gut against Mason Graham and Ken Jenkins and uh, sorry Mason Graham and Chris Jenkins and Kenneth Grant you should not be going for it because the odds of that are like astronomically low I just don't I don't really understand it and Tennessee did it against Bama too right like Tennessee runs uh, I think it was a fourth and fourth and one and a half fourth and two and Tennessee's a downfield passing game, right? That's what they are. Joe Milton doesn't really want to run the ball. He'll scramble a little, use his legs a little, but that's kind of what they are. They run it up the gut and get totally stuffed. And I'm like, you're, you're Tennessee. Like, that's not your game, and you're going up against Bama's defensive front, and that's your play call? Like, it, again, it's just so many of these situations where I'm watching, like, if that's really what you think is your best option to get two yards, three yards, whatever it is, when either fundamentally as an identity you can't do that or because you can't do that you make the actual play call so incredibly predictable that it has almost no chance of success you just shouldn't be going for it and I feel like that's totally gotten lost on people it's just the, the call is divorced from the decision and there are plenty of situations where I'm seeing like 
okay, I get going for it here, and then you see the play call, and it's like, no, that that can't be it. If that's it, this was a bad decision. Yeah, I t- I agree with that. I'm pretty aggressive on it. I mean, we debate these in real time on our couch. Yeah. On a lot of Saturdays, and I'm I think a little more aggressive than than you have been. You know, I'm like they should, and you're like, no, they should. Maybe shouldn't. that's why. Like I used to. I feel like I used to be more aggressive than coaches ever were. And now it just feels like it's swung so far that there are so many of these where I'm like, I, I don't get it based on what you are and what you can do. So it's, it's interesting. And maybe I'm like, I've swung too far back to the, the boomer end of things. Um, or, or maybe it's just a reaction to the fact that there are so few teams in the country right now that actually have good running games. That's kind of a, an interesting thing that we've identified a little bit the past few weeks is that I mean, you watch Michigan, and it's like, okay, the ground game's not quite what it was last year. It's pretty good, but it's not the juggernaut that it was in 2022. And then you look around the country, and it's like, okay, Georgia's got a pretty good run game, and Notre Dame's got a a nice run game. And then you watch all these other teams, and it's like, God, there are a lot of teams out there that just have no real ability to run the ball or no real understanding of how they want to run the ball, and it's just sort of a a sideshow to the passing game they've put in place. And it's kind of wild to watch. And I think that's a big part of what's making some of these decisions so iffy. It's just an inability to do that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you mentioned Washington and ASU. I think we can talk about that one real quickly. So, I mean, Washington looked like garbage for most of the night. Michael Penix really, really struggled in this game. And it looked for a lot of it like ASU was actually going to pull this out. I mean, Washington was uh, touchdownless. And I believe this was a... uh, uh, a similar situation to the Ohio State-Penn State game and that it was like 10-6 to 6 late, I think, in ASU's favor. So similar. They drive down the field, um, had a, a couple of uh, well, a couple of really questionable PI flags picked up, including one that would have given them first and goal and a chance to probably put this game away in about middle of the fourth quarter. And instead, they get into a fourth and three situation, or fourth and two. I can't remember if it was fourth and two or fourth and three, but they decide to go for it. And... Um, Instead of kind of riding their uh, their power back, um, Cam Scadabo, who'd had a, a fantastic game, they decide to throw a little slant, try to get the first down. The receiver kind of slips. The corner cuts in front of him and picks it off and returns it 90 yards the other direction for a touchdown. And that was Washington's only touchdown of the game. So that was another one where, like, you're playing a, a just a, a shit fest <laughs> in the rain. Washington can't score on you for some reason. Very odd. But Washington can't score on you. Like, just kick the field goal and take the you know the, the one score lead or whatever, and they they didn't, and it probably cost them the game. But one other point about this game was that, like I mentioned, Penix was was terrible. He had two early interceptions. You know, moved the ball just enough late to um, to kind of put the game away once Washington had that that touchdown lead, but finished without a touchdown. And this was probably the first game all year when it really looked like Penix was not uh, you know not the Heisman front runner, and on a night when J.J. McCarthy did what he did, that was definitely enough to uh, to kind of flip the betting odds in, in J.J.'s favor. And I think there were a couple other games we wanted to touch on. I know I kind of branched off there because we were talking about fourth down decisions, but Iowa-Minnesota? Why, though? <laughs> but why? <laughs> that is the uh, sort of rhetorical question of the, uh, of the millennia for Iowa football. I mean... Okay, so this game is as hideous as we thought. But the interesting thing, of course, was the way that it ended, which is, you know, immediately before it ends, right, Iowa's got the ball with, like, I don't know, they punt the ball away with, like, a minute and a half left yeah, down. Two minutes on the clock, they're losing, and they punt the ball from midfield. And it's like, I, I know you're Iowa, but this feels 
iffy. <laughs> Jesus, but punting is winning. And is winning. so they forced the three and out right away, Minnesota punts. And I was like, it's coming. Cooper DeJean, or Cooper DeJean punt return touchdown. It's coming. And note that at this point, it's it's 12 to 10, Minnesota, right? right. So Iowa only needs a field goal. And yes. they do get the, the quick stop after the uh, after the punt. Minnesota goes three and out. And it was at this moment I tweeted, I can't I absolutely can't wait to see what kind of bullshit Iowa manifests here to win this game. And your response to that was Cooper DeGene punt return is, is absolutely coming. And it did <laughs> until it didn't. Um so he does this weird kind of signal where he's pointing with his I'm like gesturing right now behind my microphone as if he's you guys done the can thing see you see me. sometimes on on balls that hit the ground right where the ball hits the ground it's rolling toward the sideline and he is pointing toward the ball with one hand and using his other hand to wave essentially to wave his own teammates and or Minnesota players off right and this is where the dispute comes in is he then picks the ball up weaves up the sideline cuts all the way across the field it's an incredible power return. I mean Cooper DeGene is one of the best players in the country and I, I kind of wish we got to see more of him like on offense or in some, <laughs> some doing <capacity>. interesting things <laughs> right no apparently not right so then they review the play to see if he stepped out of bounds and as part of the review they end up saying the waving was actually a, an either valid or invalid fair catch signal that's the interesting thing about the rule is that any kind of wave if you wave it above your head that's a valid signal if you wave it anywhere else it's referred to as an invalid fair catch signal, but it just means the ball is dead at the spot. So functionally, it is the same thing as a fair catch, regardless of whether you make the valid signal or the invalid signal. The point is that as a defender, if you're not sure if the guy is fair catching, you inherently kind of have to let up, and that affects the outcome of the play. So it's just dead. Yeah, and so they review it. They determine that he had made an illegal fair catch signal, and you know they the ball is dead at the spot. And the thing about this that remains absolutely hysterical to me is there's like over a minute left. And it wasn't like, you know, they they had gotten the ball in what was we for any normal team, pretty good field position to get into field goal. Yeah, they were range. At like midfield. They probably needed 15 yards to get into field goal range and potentially win. But it's Iowa. So you're and like, yeah, oh, absolutely. Not. You were like, oh, well, that's game for them. Like you like it was absolutely impossible to believe that they could pick up 20 yards. Well, There was good reason for that in a minute. They finished with two yards in the second half. Like two, no, you know what I mean? It's unbelievable. But yeah, like the minute that the minute that touchdown got called off, we were like, all right, well, that's oh, yeah, the I was done. There's because they're the only team on the planet that you have literally no faith in, absolutely zero faith right. in them being able Infinitely to move the ball. Infinitely better chance of moving the ball on special teams or with the defense, frankly. <laughs> like Than to go 20 yards in like a minute. They yeah. had time. And then we were like, all right, well, that's that for yeah, Iowa. They and it was. Went, like incompletion, sack, interception. Because, of course, they did, right? Like, it's the Iowa offense. Oh, my God. Brutal. Yeah, it was terrible. But also, like, I know there was a lot of debate about whether this was the quote-unquote correct call. It does look like by the letter of the, the rule that it was. But also, at some point, the equities dictate that Iowa cannot keep winning games this way, right? This felt like the football gods coming down and being like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough out of you, Iowa. Get the fuck out of here. So I, uh, I I don't think that uh, any of us can be too upset about the outcome here or the way it played out. No, no, we can't. A couple other interesting games. Oklahoma and Texas both survived, to put it generously, against a pretty uninspiring Big 12 competition. For Oklahoma, that was against UCF. For Texas, that was against Houston in a game that 
well, they were very fortunate to win because Houston came up a touchdown short after a fourth down stop that was almost certainly actually a first down for Houston and should have been first and goal. But anyway, they both survived um, with a caveat that for Texas, Quinn Ewers is now out for a while, maybe the rest of the regular season with a shoulder sprain. So just looking at kind of the rest of the playoff picture, the Big 12 right now at least feels like, well, it kind of feels like last year and that I just whoever gets in out of that conference, assuming that the Big 12 champion gets into the playoff, just feels like it's going to be the least concerning of the teams that are likely to get at this stage. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not super afraid of Florida State either. They strike me as a little inconsistent. That's probably another one. Yeah, they've had a couple Then of... again, I feel like they can also light you on fire oh, right. sometimes. That passing game is, is kind of scary. I feel a little bit like the Pac-12 teams to me in that regard. I, th- I think Washington and Oregon are both a little bit better all around than Florida State. But um, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't disagree with you about the, the Florida State point. And I guess one other one was um, USC and Utah, actually, Saturday night. That was a... A fun one where um, Utah playing without Cam Rising, who is actually going to redshirt the season now. He's decided not to come back at all. Uh, with their <laughs> their former walk-on, quote-unquote, pig farmer quarterback, Bryson Barnes, knock off USC for the third time in the last two years on a, uh, a walk-off field goal. And that just feels... USC-Utah is interesting to me because it feels so much like what is happening between Michigan and Ohio State where USC is Ohio State. They're the team that's built with just high-octane passing game, and that's their whole identity. And Utah's whole identity is we're going to punch you in the mouth over and over and over until you yell uncle. And, again, that's three times in the past year and a half. I mean, USC lost to Utah in the regular season last year, had a chance to uh, avenge it in the Pac-12 championship game. Didn't. Didn't do it. And then this year, even without Cam Rising, who is really the entire Utah offense— again couldn't do it it was kind of a rough night for Caleb Williams the USC defense remains a dumpster fire so it was just kind of more of the same there in a funny way given that uh, you know I think we're going to get maybe one more one more look at that between Michigan and Ohio State this year yeah that's right Um, we want to talk briefly about UNC Virginia yeah that was the one other big upset I mean Washington and ASU I think that was about a 25 point spread and UNC Virginia was like 23 and a half or something like that and Virginia actually pulled that out I think their first ACC win over the win of the year over undefeated North Carolina and it was just uh it was more evidence that it's college football like good teams lose to mediocre teams all the time this is not that like out of the ordinary teams are just volatile and unpredictable because it's a bunch of like 19 to 22 year olds and just kind of bringing that back full circle with what we talked about earlier in the episode it just that kind of hit home for me like what Michigan has been doing is just all the more impressive they've been so methodical and so under control and so consistent in the way that they've gone through every game this year getting apparently even stronger as the year goes along so that's just been fun to see and again one kind of point of appreciation there given what we saw a little bit of uh, elsewhere Saturday and Saturday night for sure I'm I am eternally grateful to this team and hopefully it will continue to roll with not the NCAA interrupting and ruining (laughs) my life so yeah we'll see we do have the bye week coming up now so um, we'll uh, revisit this next week with a little bit of a preview episode looking forward to you know coming out of this we've really got what Harbaugh was talking about last week right it's November the skies are gray and this is when championships are won and Michigan gets Purdue Penn State Maryland Ohio State like this is the home stretch 
So we'll be back next week to talk about it. That's right. So if you're still here, uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you then. Go Blue.